I want to welcome all of you to our brand new series where we are going to be talking about our home, our eventual home, if we're a follower of Christ. The Bible calls it heaven. And I want to share with you a resource that you may have. If you don't, you may want to buy it or download it. It's a book that was written by Randy Alcorn, and it's simply entitled Heaven, all right? And Randy Alcorn, you can go to Amazon, whatever you'd like. He's done a great job studying the subject and answers tons of questions. So encourage you to have that. I'll refer to it uh, during the series and uh, enjoy. Now, whenever you talk about heaven, it conjures up all kinds of ideas and images in people's minds. It's kind of always interesting to find out what people really, really honestly think about heaven. And I came across this cartoon the other day. I came across this cartoon. There it is. I came across this cartoon the other day, and the caption says, a fate worse than death. And this guy is sitting on a cloud, very, very excited, and the expression of the bubble, God, this is boring. Now, if, if that's what heaven is like, endless clouds, um, a wardrobe that consists of nothing but white robes, a golden harp, and every day is the same day, over and over and over again, then I can understand why somebody would think to themselves that it's a fate worse than death. But the good news is that that's not what heaven is like at all. And we can't live by what we think or what we heard or what we saw in a movie or what we assume the Bible says or some novelist wrote. When you really see what God's Word has to say about heaven, and it's not complete, it only gives us a small picture of it, it's very exciting. So what I hope happens after six weekends talking about heaven is that you are going to be filled with joy that is going to create anticipation in your heart. And for those of you who have a loved one who's passed on into heaven who had faith in Christ, I hope it will give you great comfort. I hope you'll feel connected to them in a sense. And then finally, there's just something really important about the future that helps us live in the present. If I really understand what the future is like, it helps me know how to dial into the here and the now. So lots of great benefits by uh, looking at heaven uh, together. So here's how I want to start. I want to start with a question. Maybe it's something you've thought about before, at least I have. And it goes something like this. Do human beings, no matter where they are, okay, no matter what their background, do human beings have an innate sense about life after death? Is it kind of wired into us to think that there is more to this life than just the here and now that we're all kind of living in? And while I was looking into that and doing some research, I was so surprised to come across a study uh, released by the University of Oxford. And it's a fairly recent study where they researched that question and concluded that yes, indeed, Yes, indeed, across cultures around the world, there is this sense that there's more to life than the here and now. Now, they may believe in gods or the God of the Scripture. They may believe that when one dies, one's mind, one's soul, one's spirit is separated from the body and goes off into some kind of existence. But they believe that there's more to life than just right now, just right now. I call it kind of a, a homing intuition that we're all born with. So I thought, well, I'm going to go look up for the dictionary what it, homing means. I mean, I, I, I know what it means in my mind, but I want to see more of a 
uh, kind of a scientific definition. And I love the definition I came across as it relates to thinking about heaven and as it relates to our lives. And it goes like this. Homing describes an inherent ability that animals have to navigate to their original location through unknown areas. I don't know, I really like that. It's this natural ability that animals in particular have to navigate toward where they started, an original location, through unknown areas. You never see ducks pull out a map or geese pull out a map. All right? They don't have to get licensed with instrument rating. They just know. They just know. Where does that come from? Where does that come from in us? Why is there this sense that there's more after we die? That there's something about eternity, something about life? Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 gives us the answer. Let's read it aloud together and online as well. Ready? He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. And I just want you to lock in for just a brief moment on that phrase. He has also set eternity in the human heart. It's as though we are born with a voice that says, God is, God is, God is, God is. C.S. Lewis talking about this puts it in a far more poetic way. He says, heaven is that remote music we are born remembering. Heaven is that remote music we are born remembering. So why is it when you see a sunrise or a sunset or stand at the edge of the ocean on the coast and the water, you know, breaks in with those waves rolling forward or look up at a starlit night or be on a lake in Minnesota and it's placid, like glass. You feel like you could walk on it. Or when you look into the eyes of a newborn infant or you see a rainbow spread across the sky, why is it that it jogs something in our memory of a paradise that once was? A paradise lost, but a sense that that paradise somehow is still there. Why is it that we have this innate sense that somehow there's a creator and we're connected to that creator. It's because I believe it's innate, it's in us. God put it in us. But you know, Satan, the enemy of our soul, wants to destroy that. He wants to deceive us. He doesn't want us to think about that. He wants to cloud up, so to speak, eternity and cloud up any sense of the reality of God himself. Jesus said about Satan in John chapter 8 verse 44 that he's a liar. He's a liar from the very beginning. He is the father of lies. And I'll tell you what, his lies are alive and well and powerful in our culture today. He works so hard to keep us from thinking about God. Romans chapter 1 has a couple of interesting verses beginning in verse 19. Paul says, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, 
For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Paul say, look at creation. We just did that a minute ago. Sunrise, sunset, rainbow. Look at creation. It just shouts of a creator. But instead of being led toward that creator, what do we do? We deny the creator. We worship the creation instead. Or what we see in our modern day world today is a real emphasis, especially in, in some of our, many of our universities and the higher echelons of society of what's called naturalism. Naturalism is the idea that you can only really believe in what you can see, what's empirical, what you can touch, what's, what's material. The supernatural doesn't exist, therefore God doesn't exist, therefore there are no miracles. And all we can believe in is what we have and we live and we die and that's it. It's a lie. It's meant to move us away from God. It's meant to give us, it's meant to take away hope. C.S. Lewis, in one of his stories called The Silver Chair, talks about three characters, Puddleglum, Jill, and Eustace, who are trapped in this underworld. And the underworld is ruled by this very wicked witch. And she's trying to convince them that the only existence is that which is in the underworld. There is no overworld that they keep talking about. There is no Aslan, this mighty lion who represents Christ. There's no sky, there's no sunshine, there's no Narnia. She hates Aslan, she hates Narnia, she wants to kill Aslan, she wants to conquer Narnia, but she has to convince them that this is all that exists, is the underworld itself. They try telling her that in the overworld there's a sun. She says, well describe to me the sun. And they start talking about lamps to try to describe what the sun is like. She says, ah, there you go. You've seen lamps, and now you're taking lamps, and you're projecting these lamps into this thing you call the sun. It doesn't exist. They talk about Aslan, the mighty lion. She says, you've seen cats, and you're taking a cat, and you're projecting this cat into this mighty lion called Aslan. There is no mighty lion. These are all figments of your imagination. There is no Narnia, there is no Aslan, there is no overworld, there's only this world. And she says it over and over and over again until they begin to fall under her spell. And then all of a sudden, Puddleglum breaks the spell. And he says to the wicked witch, he says to her, listen, even if you think that the overworld is make-believe, that we made up Aslan, we made up Narnia, we made up the sunshine, I much prefer our made-up world to your gloomy, depressing, dark world that you have. What's C.S. Lewis doing with that story? C.S. Lewis is saying a lot of what we take to be the truth is a lie. It's not the truth. In another place, he asks this question, if a blind man cannot see stars, does that mean that stars don't exist? Just because I can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. 
In fact, I would challenge you to think about the world that we live in today. And I'm not talking about creation. I'm talking about how, how our world's interpreted. I'm talking about worldviews that are out there. I'm talking about naturalism, a perversion of Christianity or false religions. Let me ask you a question. How are, how are man's ways, what man thinks is the truth, working out? Is there less racism? Is there less injustice? Is there less violence? Is there less suffering? Is there less loneliness? If anything, it seems to be on the increase, doesn't it? It doesn't appear that man's ways work it out real well. But the true gospel, I said the true gospel, the true God, his ways are work. His ways are true. And to me, one of the greatest evidence that God is, is that sense in all of us, I believe, and I think you can deny that sense, you know, as you get older, but I think it's genuine, I think it's in every human being, even the most primitive human beings, that sense that there is something more than this, which begs a second question. Here's the second question. It gets more interesting. Do you think that here on earth we can see heaven? Do you think here on earth we can see into heaven? Have you ever tried to describe a place that you've been to someone who's never been there before? That's a challenging thing to do, isn't it? You should have seen those redwood trees. Oh my goodness, I've never seen such large, round, tall, reaching trees. I swear they're poking the sky. Oh, you should have been there on that lake. Oh my goodness, the water was like glass. I felt like it could have gotten out and walked right on it. It was so clear that I could look down there and I could see the bass. I could see the northerns chasing the bass. Oh, it was so beautiful. And the sound of the loons in the background, oh, it was magnificent. Oh, you should have been with me in Colorado when we stood there in the valley, there between the two mountains. I swear to you, those mountains were purple. I've never seen such a green valley colored with the most beautiful flowers you've ever seen. And there in the middle while we were looking, suddenly a bear stood up on his hind legs and outstretched his paws. Oh, it was magnificent. You ever try to tell that to somebody who's not been there? You do everything you can. You use most descriptive words. You use metaphors. You act it out. You even try to take a picture if you have one because you want them to see it in their imagination because if they can see it in their imagination, they'll see something of what you've said. The problem is when you try to get adults to use their imaginations, is really hard. Because our imaginations get ruined. They get tainted. They get corrupted. It's so much fun, however, to try to tell a child something to imagine because their imaginations are very vivid. Marcia, my wife, is a wonderful storyteller when it comes to Bible stories for kids or Christian biographies. And I just love it when she does it. And I love it when my four grandkids are there listening because with her words and her actions, she paints across the canvas of their imagination a scene that is so real that I can tell when they're locked in because they put their hands on their chins like this and their eyes dance with delight. And I know they've just been transported to another world. And they're living what they're seeing. You cannot think about heaven without using your imagination. That's why the words of Scripture are the way they are in the book of Revelation, in Ezekiel, and other places, in trying to describe the future. Because it's playing on your imagination. Let me ask you a question. Who gave you an imagination? God did. Why did God give us an imagination? Think about this. Have you ever thought about this? God gave us an imagination so we could see the future. 
Now, you can misuse your imagination, but God gives imagination so we can see things that we can't see right now physically. You never thought about that, did you? But he did. And I love what the philosopher and theologian Francis Schaeffer once said. He said, as Christians, we're free to use our imagination. But he said this, he said, you must make sure that your imagination never flies away from the truth, but always flies upon the truth. Did you get that? Don't let your imagination run away from the truth. Make sure your imagination is always fastened to the truth. So I thought we'd use our imaginations for a few minutes. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes online. You can do that as well. I'm going to read to you just a few verses about heaven found in the book of Revelation. And I want you to imagine what I'm going to read. And if you fall asleep, it's okay, just as long as you come back to us. If you snore, though, we will, uh, we will um, poke you in the side and put you up on the IMAX so everybody sees you snoring and drooling, all right? Close your eyes. Imagine this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. He showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and sparkled like a precious stone, like jasper as clear as crystal. The city wall was broad and high, with 12 gates guarded by 12 angels. When he measured it, he found it was a square as wide as it was long. In fact, its length and width and height were 1,400 miles. Then he measured the walls and found them to be 216 feet thick. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. No longer will there be a curse upon anything. For the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and the servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads, and there will be no more night there. No need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them, and they will reign forever and ever. Then the angel said to me, everything you have heard and seen is trustworthy and true. The Lord God, who inspires his prophets, has sent his angel to tell his servants what will happen soon. Okay, you can come back or wake up. I wish we had the time. I'd love to put you in groups and say, what did you see? Who did you see? What did you hear? What did you smell? What did you feel? What did your imagination do with that? There's nothing wrong with using our imagination as long as we understand that our imagination at best when it comes to heaven is like trying to look through a fog at what appears to be an outline of something beyond the fog. Anything you have in your imagination about what heaven is like is only a foggy view of a much greater, spectacular, unimaginable, ultimately, reality that we are all going to experience. Isn't that exciting? Would God do anything less than that? Of course not. Which then leads us to a third question. How do we go from imagining heaven to actually experiencing heaven? 
And there's one word answer to it, and you're not going to like it. Death. Told you you wouldn't like it. Can't say I like it either. What do you think about when you think of death? When I mention that word, darkness, heaviness, suffering, pain, loss, fear. Nobody likes death for good reason. We were never meant to be people who would die. When God created Adam in the garden, it says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 through 17, and I'll add a little paraphrase and interpretation to it. God said, Adam, you can have the fruit of any of the trees in the garden, but there's one tree in the garden that's mine. You cannot have the fruit from that tree. Adam, I've given you a, a unique gift that I haven't given other creatures. It's called a will. And I want you to use that will for me, not against me. And honor me. Because the day you take what doesn't belong to you and you eat it, you will die. Not there on the spot in that moment, but death will begin its process in your body. Not only will your body die, but so will your spirit. Now, when the Bible talks about the death of one's soul, one's spirit, it's not the cessation of the spirit. It's not the extinction, the end of your spirit. It means eternal separation from God. And so Paul says in Romans 5 that death Pass from one man, Adam, to all of his posterity, you and me. But the good news is, he says, forgiveness and eternal life has passed from one man, Jesus Christ, to all of us. Let's read aloud together Romans chapter 5, verse 17. Ready? For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, stop, who's that one man? Adam, okay, continue. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life to the one man, Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ. He brings us our hope. He brings us our salvation. Now, I want us, as we launch into the series in heaven, I want us to all start with at least a common ground, a common sense of truth. And it's so important, we're gonna, I want to sketch it out with you. So draw on your neighbor's hand or on your paper, grab a crayon, whatever you want to do, and I want us to think this through together, okay? We start with God, right? And God created Adam, and out of Adam, Eve. When God created Adam, he breathed into him the breath of life. That is more than just biological life. He gave him a soul, he gave him a spirit, right? And God said to Adam, if you'll obey me, okay, then I'm going to pass on through you to your posterity, to all your children, that's us, this gift of life and the blessings that come with honoring and obeying me. However, the serpent showed up. That's not a very good serpent. looks like a very sick earthworm, but you get the idea, all right? And the serpent told Adam a lie. He said to Adam, you know that will that you have? You don't need to use it to trust God as your source of life. If you take what God's keeping from you, you will become your own source of life. You don't need God. We know what Adam did. Adam took what didn't belong to him. He chose against God. He chose for the lie. He chose for himself. And as a result, as God said, death passed on to Adam and from Adam to each one of us. And other than Enoch and Elijah in the Bible who were taken out of the world, 
Everybody else dies. 100% mortality rate. You're not going to beat it. But God, in his mercy, sent his son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins and took the penalty of sin and death on himself. And to those, and these are supposed to be worshipers kneeling, all right? And to those who put their faith in Christ and what he's done for them, he passes on the gift of eternal life. So what God originally promised, Christ gives to us. Now, if I reject Christ, then death continues its effect on me physically and spiritually. In that sense, when we die, it is not because of our sins. Christ died my death for me. He has paid the price of my sins. So death for me is more of a blessing and a friend than a curse and an enemy. Paul says, we'll talk more about this in a couple of weeks, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, that, it's, that we're like a seed. Our body's like a seed. When you place it into the earth, the seed, the, the shell dies, and out of the seed comes the life, comes the flower, comes the grain. So it pops out through the earth. I can't get my new body to this old sin-wrecked body is deposited, is shed, so I can receive my resurrected body. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 8. He says, but if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And he goes on, he says, that the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give to your mortal bodies, uh, will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. One of the things, we'll talk about this next weekend, we talk about immortality, what happens after we die, is there are many other religions and many other mystery kinds of uh, uh, religions out there that believe that when you die, your body's gone and your spirit just continues to exist. The, the Bible's idea, God's idea, God's truth about immortality is you're never meant to be separated from your body. God did not create us to be these separate entities. That's why you get a resurrected body. That's how he always planned it to be. We'll talk about that more next weekend. But that leads me to a story about Dr. Billy Graham. You know, he's almost 100 years old. Amazing, amazing man. Sometimes wonder, God, why are you letting Billy Graham live so long? And then I get this thing in the back of my mind, maybe it's because he wants Billy Graham to be around when his son returns. I like that idea, but I can't prove it. Anyway, several years ago, Billy Graham was invited by the leaders of Charlotte, North Carolina. He's kind of the favorite son. That's where he was born and raised to come back, they wanted to honor him. And Graham was already struggling with Parkinson's disease and just didn't feel like he could do that physically. And so he declined and they said, we, we don't want you to come and hold a crusade. We don't want you to come and get this huge speech. We just want to honor you. So Graham finally said, okay, I'll come, and he did. <clears throat> and he came and they said really nice things about him. And then he made his way to the podium. He said, I want to tell you a story about Dr. Albert Einstein, who Time Magazine had called the man of the century, this great physicist. He said, one day, he was on a train leaving Princeton for somewhere. Where he was heading, you know, the train was on its way. And the conductor came through the train and came into the car where Einstein was sitting, and he asked Dr. Einstein for his 
ticket to punch it. And Einstein reached inside of his coat, couldn't find it, and his pants pockets and couldn't find it, and looked through his briefcase and couldn't find it, looked on the seat next to him and couldn't find it, and the conductor looked at him and said, Dr. Einstein, it's okay. I know who you are. We all know who you are. I know you bought a ticket. Don't worry about it. And Einstein nodded appreciatively, and the conductor went on punching people's tickets. And right before he was about to head into the next car, he looked back, and there's, there's Einstein on his hands and knees looking for his ticket. And so the conductor ran back to him and said, Dr. Einstein, I know who you are. It's okay. And Einstein looked up at him and said, young man, I also know who I am, but I have no idea where I'm going. Graham said to the crowd, he said, I went out and I bought a brand new suit for this occasion. So my family told me in my old age, I was starting to look rather slovenly. I've always been, you know, rather fastidious. So I, I went out and I bought my suit for this occasion and for one other occasion. He said, this is the suit that I will be buried in. He says, when you hear that Billy Graham is dead, I want you to forget about this suit. And what I want you to remember is, I know who I am, and I know where I am going. That's the last question I want to ask you. Do you know who you are? And do you know where you're going? It's the most important question we can answer as we begin our series on heaven. Would you bow your heads with me? And just, if you don't mind, just close your eyes so we can focus here for a moment. I'm going to assume that perhaps most of you and those of you watching online already have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But maybe you don't, or maybe you're unsure. That's not how God wants you to live. God wants you to have a surety. He wants you to have assurance. And that assurance comes when I simply put my faith in Jesus Christ. The fact that he's God's son, the fact that he came to die my death, take my guilt and my shame. The fact that through him and him alone I can have forgiveness of sins. Do you believe that today? Are you ready to put your wholehearted faith in him? Doesn't matter how young or how old you are. This is not about some kind of, you know, life insurance. Listen, this is about truly trusting God. This is about saying I'm all in. And I'm giving my life to Christ. And I'm asking him to come in. And I'm going to devote myself to following you every day, Lord. And when I fail, I'm just going to get right back up again and trust you because I'm your child. If you're at that place, just pray this prayer silently with me. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I confess that I cannot save myself. I can never be good enough. I can never be religious enough. I can never go to church enough. God, I'm a beggar. And I'm begging you for forgiveness. And ask you to come into my life. If you prayed that prayer sincerely, after our service is over, 
Pastor Gary will be here at the front and our prayer partners. Would you come and let him know, please, you prayed that prayer? Because we want to help you in your journey with God. Not meant to go it alone. You're going to need the encouragement because the liar is going to try to deceive you that you didn't mean it, that it doesn't matter. If you're online, you can email us and tell us about your decision. and Our online pastor will follow up with you as well. God, speak to our hearts. And for any who prayed that prayer, Lord, I pray that you touch their life right now. Pray that your spirit would bear witness to their spirit that they are your child. And for that, we give you thanks. In Christ's name, amen. You know, there's a, there's a blessed assurance that comes when we put our faith in Christ. Not just an assurance of what is in the future, but a wonderful assurance that he's with us in the now. And so I'm going to ask you to stand with me, please. I'm going to ask you not to leave. I'm going to ask you to give God some praise and worship as we sing this beautiful hymn, Blessed Assurance. Let's stand together. <laughs>